We are two friends trying to gain perspective on the remarkable world around us. I'm Jet Jones. I'm Mackenzie DeMaio. And this is Friends Fascinated. If you like what you hear today, don't forget to review and subscribe. This week, we're going to deep dive into the Unabomber. This week's fascinating fact came from Nathan Schuerk, one of our most avid listeners and engagers on Instagram. Um, He DM'd us with this fact. He said, the Moore's law is that every two years, transistor size doubles. Basically, computers get twice as powerful. But there's an inverse of that law in biomechanics called Irum's law. That's more backwards that the drug research prices are doubled and drug efficiency is halved every two years. Basically, because drugs are already so good, finding a new breakthrough drug is getting harder and harder to figure out. Now, altogether, both laws will end with the use of quantum computers, which will make the growth of transistors basically obsolete, but also a quantum computer will make even the most specific drugs better and cheaper. That's super interesting and crazy deep yeah it's like things build off of each other Mm -hmm. that are hard to understand and super huge industries all tied together Mm -hmm. everything's connected yep it's crazy to think about where the future is going to take us and all the ways it affects literally everything yeah so thanks nathan we really appreciate you interacting with us yes thank you and you guys should go follow his account on instagram because he does really good insta story polls about Mm -hmm. dramatic topics and you can get in on the debate there i always do (laughs) me too um and then if you would like to submit your fascinating fact to us you can dm us on instagram like nathan did or you can send us an email to friendsfascinated at gmail.com because I mean, a fact like this is great because it ties into exactly what we're going to talk about today because technology is the thing that the Unabomber was Mm -hmm. fighting against. So it's crazy that technology has such a big grasp on us. Yeah, we're going to talk all about whether or not technology is a good thing and at least what he thought, which was a little bit extreme. A little extreme. (laughs) So we thought we'd get started by kind of going through his history. And so reading through just like his earlier life was really interesting. It was Mm. different than I expected. Yeah, I got bits and pieces, but I'm excited for you to kind of remind me and give me the full story because I I purposely skipped over it knowing you would cover it. (laughs) Yes. So he was born in 1942 in Chicago. And basically now he is known as a domestic terrorist. Yeah. But he was also a former math professor. And so um, starting kind of at the early stages of his life, he was considered a happy baby until he was hospitalized with severe highs and put in isolation in a hospital with limited contact with others. And they said that after that, he showed little emotion for months, Hmm. which is so crazy. But I've also heard a lot about how it's really important for babies to have human contact and Mm -hmm. contact with their mothers and how just crucial that is to their development. Yeah, that human development part is so vital to Mm -hmm. just being a good existing human. But there's also the piece where if he was that sick as a baby, like, I don't know what happens to the body when you experience hives, but I do believe it's a form of, like, very fast swelling. It comes up in spots, Mm -hmm. though. So I wonder, like, if anything could have happened to his brain or the chemistry in his brain in that time. So, Mm -hmm. again, I feel like all of our topics kind of touch on the nature versus nurture thing. Like, could it have been because he was sick and he didn't have anything to control it? Or was he not being nurtured properly 
and well yeah i can definitely see why if you don't get the nurture you need as a baby and the effects that can have even like for it to affect a baby to where they don't show emotion for months i can't imagine what long-term effects that would have on the development of your brain seriously so yeah that's crazy but also like what are you going to do when your baby's super sick yeah and needs to be in isolation that's just the fact of what happened so definitely a crazy start to his life uh and then going forward he was definitely a super smart kid like he was very intelligent and so one thing was when he was um pretty early in grade school he actually skipped sixth grade and that was because he got a 167 on an iq test dang which is crazy high it said that approximately two-thirds of the population scores between 85 and 115 (laughs) So he basically doubled the average score (laughs) in sixth grade when you're like 12 or something. You're like still trying to figure out deodorant. (laughs) Like literally, like, oh my gosh, I I thought that was insane. And so it says about 2.5% of the population scores above a 130 and about 2.5% scored below 70. So he was crazy high on the IQ scale, even Hmm. at like 12 years old. So he skipped sixth grade and it actually said that basically he, after skipping a grade, felt kind of out of place because he was younger than everyone. So he was bullied, which I can actually relate to (laughs) because I was a grade ahead in school, not because I skipped a grade, I wasn't that smart, (laughs) but when I was little, I was homeschooled and so basically school looked fun so my mom let me start school a year early. Mm -hmm. So I was just a grade ahead throughout school and because of that, like... I was, it's hard to say bullied, but like maybe technically bullied, but made fun of for being like I think the term shorter. would be like ostracized a little bit. Yeah. So I was definitely like given a hard time for being shorter and a lot of people didn't realize I was younger, but like I also was a lot younger than everyone. Yeah. And so I, I can relate to feeling kind of out of place, especially when like you're further in high school and people are getting their license or doing cool stuff and you're like i'm a baby yeah (laughs) compared to you all Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yeah i i can relate to why that would be hard especially it's isolating right if you think about i mean we'll learn more about this later but he seems like kind of a lone wolf type of guy and i can imagine parts of that could bleed into you know his future where he feels like maybe the people he's surrounded by Mm-hmm. aren't his cup of tea and well yeah he's do basically he had a hard time relating to people from a very young age and then he kept getting placed in circumstances where he was an outlier mm-hmm. so it caused him to kind of be a loner yeah and so and he was described as a loner and even like some people referred to him as being an old man before his time so kind of mm-hmm. an old soul i would say it actually said at one point that his mother was worried about his social development and she considered putting him in a study for autistic children but decided against it based on the person who ran the study basically seemed really harsh and so she hmm. decided against having him in that which props to her like i think that was probably a good move yeah <laughs> to keep him safe and protected from that kind of environment So then when he was in high school, he actually was in a lot of different clubs in high school, which I was a little bit surprised considering how much he was considered a loner. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like he really participated with the people in the clubs. (laughs) Like he was a part of the clubs. You would go to the meetings, but like sit in the back corner. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) That's what it seemed like. Um, So there was a quote from a former classmate that said he was never really seen as a person, as an individual personality. He was always regarded as a walking brain, so to speak. Hmm. So he was like this smart guy that... 
like it sounds like people didn't really quite relate to like he didn't maybe want too much to do with people he just kind of kept to himself he felt kind of like an outsider yeah maybe he's the guy that girls would flirt up to get like answers to the the practice test but then ghost him later on type of thing i mean yeah yeah um he apparently would spend hours studying and solving advanced math problems so he basically mastered like math was his area of expertise like the thing that he was interested in and so he went well beyond like he was like the best at math and mm-hmm. stuff. He he just was super smart with math. Another classmate recalled that he was the smartest kid in class, just quiet and shy until you got to know him. But once he knew you, he could talk and talk. That's so like me. <laughs> standard introvert. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, maybe he just kept to himself. But I mean, based on that, I would say he probably craved some friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he, again was so stinking smart he skipped 11th grade too oh no so he attended summer school and was able to graduate at age 15 so young that's the age of a freshman in high school that's how old i was in high school i didn't know anything at age 15 no not a thing i was ahead in high school so i was 15 as a junior but wow still like again i felt like an outsider and really young and like it was a little bit harder to relate to people so I can't even imagine. But, no, like, he was no. craving being done with high school if he went to summer school to get out early. Yeah. Um, but then he entered Harvard on a scholarship at age 16. <sighs> Again, oh, God. a teeny tiny baby. <laughs> and he was in college mm-hmm. at Harvard. <sighs> and that was in 1958. <laughs> like, he didn't even have a driver's license yet. <laughs> Like he and, and mom, it, can you take me to my quantum physics chemistry class at Harvard? <laughs> I can't drive. Yeah, and he, I'm pretty sure his family stayed in Illinois. Like I don't think they went with him. So he was actually basically just like shipped off. I know a little bit about that from oh, I watched a couple documentaries. So he, I guess when he went to Harvard, he joined a dorm that mm-hmm. was known as one of the most hoity-toity ones on campus. And again, he was kind of ostracized yet again hmm. because um, he wasn't as like financially well off as a lot of the oh. the snoots <laughs> that he joined. Yeah. I, it either was a dorm or a frat. I, mean, I don't that's really a know common how it works. Trope in yeah high school, like that's the scholarship true. kid, and they're given a hard time because they yeah. can't get all the fancy stuff. But I I did actually see something about that he was in a certain living arrangement that tended to have some younger. Oh, college kids. Maybe, probably not nearly as young as him, but maybe kids that were a little on the younger side. Maybe like people who had their parents buy their way into Harvard (laughs) and he had to. So maybe like 18 year olds (laughs) instead of, yeah. Who knows? But again, at Harvard, he was described as being quiet, but still friendly. He kept to himself and he was considered basically a genius by everyone. Hmm. Uh, It was mentioned that like people didn't really think he was ready. Like he was kind of sent off to be a genius at a young age, but he probably just wasn't ready for it. It is. but what what would you do right because if you think if you're in his shoes you're like okay high school is really really sucking people get really vicious in all that world Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna study the heck out of it and get the heck out of high school and then all of a sudden people like well smart people go to college Mm -hmm. well what else is he supposed to do go like work on a farm for a few years he loved math yeah he wanted to learn more about math, yeah. so that was the way to do it. But doesn't mean he should have just been shipped off to an yeah. Ivy League college to yeah. fend for himself, you know? Hey, boy. I hardly felt ready for that when I was 18 going to college. So 
I could not imagine at 15. Oh yeah, God. me neither. So he received a bachelor's degree in math from Harvard in 1962, so at age 20, and he finished with a 3.12 GPA, which they said was considered above average, but I thought that was a little bit low for a genius. Well, I feel like when grading started, which actually, believe it or not, I've done a, I've learned a little bit about this, is... The grading system isn't that old and oh. before it used to be skewed where like a C was actually good and a B was like fantastic and an A is like, who are you? Why are you in my class? You're doing so good. Oh. So I think a, a C would be an average, right? But now our culture and the way our society looks at grades is like if you didn't get an A, you didn't do everything you could have to get an A. Mm-hmm. So you're inferior type of thing. Well, and at one point he basically said like, they're not challenging me that much. I got A's. So clearly like it's not that hard. Yeah. It's like, dude, you're a genius though. (laughs) Yeah. It's different. Yeah. One thing that again was interesting and I could see why this would have some serious long-term effects. Uh, As a sophomore, Kaczynski participated in a study described as a purposely brutalizing psychological experiment led by a Harvard psychologist, Henry Murray. And he bad. Do you know more about him? Yeah, actually, Nathan, shout out to you yet again. <laughs> um, he had ties to MK Ultra. Oh, okay. So that actually does kind of circle back. So what I read made it sound like it wasn't confirmed, but it seems pretty confirmed from my understanding. Yeah, it's pretty confirmed. Yeah. So the subjects were told that they would be debating personal philosophy with a fellow student and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. The essays were turned over to an anonymous attorney who in a later session would confront and belittle the subject, making sweeping and personally abusive attacks using the content of the essay as an ammunition, which is so sad because it's like, hey, write something you're really excited about and then let's brutally make you feel terrible about it and oh by the way um we're gonna have electrodes monitoring you for psychological reactions and so these encounters were all filmed and the subjects expressed anger and rage which makes sense makes sense they're being basically mentally tortured and then later they had to watch themselves repeatedly get really angry and be enraged and I didn't hear that yeah it's terrible oh first I'm just imagining some weird like echoey room yeah where you hear yourself screaming at someone for them picking you apart and then you're feeling guilty about the fact that you acted that way but then you don't know what you're being subjected to and the person's really evil and and I know in my experience like usually if I get upset with someone I feel bad about it after and then to have to watch that and like kind of feel guilty or embarrassed and cringe about it over and Uh, over that's bad Yeah, terrible. And this experiment lasted for three years with someone verbally abusing and humiliating him every week. He spent 200 hours as part of this study. Oh, me gooey. Yeah. Kaczynski's lawyers later attributed his hostility towards mind control techniques to his participation in Murray's study. Mm -hmm. And then it said that some sources suggest that Murray's experiments were part of MKUltra. Which seems pretty darn confirmed yeah and the reason why i brought up nathan is because way back when in our first episode when we covered mk ultra he let us know Mm -hmm. about how the unabomber was possibly subjected to something Mm -hmm. in mk ultra and that's why we wanted to do the unabomber topic and so it all ties together it does really crazy yeah and it was to no surprise suggested that these uh experiences that he went through may have motivated his criminal activities Mm -hmm. which based on how other people reacted to mk ultra studies like 
I'm not surprised at all. It basically made people crazy. And just imagine, like, there's a really good chance that he was being given, like, drugs and things. Yeah. Without his knowledge during this time. Yep. It's spooky. And he was basically a child. Yeah. The part that kind of trips me out is that he was being subjected to this. Mm -hmm. And from my reading on the Unabomber throughout his entire future as well, is that he doesn't trust psychologists anymore Mm. because he associates them with all these experiments and he thinks they're evil makes sense so if we're looking at the sum of his personality traits and how this would create a terrorist um if you think about someone who hates psychologists or doesn't trust them and those are the mental health providers that are supposed to guide people who are mentally um, ill or needing help mm-hmm. and he doesn't have that resource anymore but not only does he not have it he doesn't trust it or believe in it mm-hmm. well i feel like it would make you skeptical of literally everyone well exactly if those are if, if those are your resource and you can't trust it like my god mm-hmm. that's a huge like problem and yeah. if you think about how he is kind of a loner and he's already kind of isolating himself in a lot of ways And then if you mix in the fact that everybody's put him on this pedestal of being a genius and feeding his ego Mm -hmm. that way that he's got this inflated narcissism underlying everything mixed with the fact that he doesn't trust people if they tell him he's crazy along with the fact that he's having like anger and disagreements with Mm -hmm. the way people are on the outside looking in at him. Like that's a recipe for disaster Mm -hmm. well and yeah just looking at all of the different trauma and things that he went through and just all of the ways that he felt like he didn't belong like i just i can't even imagine yeah that's a lot of stuff to add Mm -hmm. together yeah and then in 1962 uh, after he graduated with his bachelor's degree kaczynski enrolled at the university of michigan where he earned his master's and his doctoral degrees in mathematics in 1964 and 1967 that sounds awful <laughs> i know <laughs> not gonna lie to have to do a doctorate in math that just and that I sounds like, like math i know he's, and i would hate that i hate math and i can say that sounds like torture that sounds like i wouldn't want to be alive and mm-hmm. live that existence yeah but michigan actually was not his first choice for postgraduate education he also applied to the university of california berkeley and the university of chicago both of which accepted him but offered him no teaching position or financial aid mm. michigan offered him an annual grant of $2,300, which is the equivalent of almost $20,000 now. Woo! And a teaching position. Nice. At like, again, age, what, 22 or something? Yeah. Oh well, I guess 25. Yeah. So he went on to teach at the University of Michigan for a while and then ended up taking a position at Berkeley later on. And basically, it doesn't sound like it was a good fit. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, so they do, um, teaching evaluations at the end of semesters and so it doesn't sound like students liked him very much Mm -hmm. he refused to answer questions which as a student i'd be so upset about that yeah (laughs) like how can you learn if you can't ask questions but anyway so uh he wasn't well liked um and then he basically out of the blue resigned from berkeley and he moved to his parents home in illinois And then two years later, in 1971, he moved to a remote cabin, which he built, and that was in Montana. So kind of outside Lincoln, Montana. Mm -hmm. I think it was on like one and a half acres or something. Okay. Yeah. So like decent size, but probably not completely separate. Imagine a decent sized shed. 
on this land. Well, yeah, and he, like, he wanted to live a simple life with just a little bit of money. He didn't want electricity or running water, and basically his goal was to work odd jobs and receive a little bit of financial support, either from those jobs or even from his family, and his original goal is to become self-sufficient so that he could live anonymously. Mm -hmm. He basically wanted to be off the grid, so this poor guy (laughs) had basically hated society and wanted nothing to do with it yeah and he was like this genius he wrote all kinds of books and did his dissertation on math where he was basically described as being this like amazing genius Mm -hmm. and i think i saw somewhere that only like 15 people in the country could like grasp his dissertation but the ones that could thought it was amazing and groundbreaking wow like he was a smart dude wow (laughs) yeah so He taught himself survival skills to live the way he wanted to live, such Mm -hmm. as tracking game, edible plant identification, organic farming, bow drilling, and other primitive technologies. Hmm. And then he used an old bicycle to get to town as needed. And a volunteer at the local library said he visited frequently to read classic works in their original language. Whoa. Yeah. And then uh, (laughs) other people, (laughs) uh, people that lived in Lincoln said that (laughs) <laughs> i'm just sorry again i i just gotta describe my mental picture of what you just gave me i'm just imagining some crazy bushman like mm-hmm. on a rickety old bike squeaking his way into town yep. using a bow and arrow to shoot down like a squirrel freaking <laughs> pulls over to start a little fire and gnaw on a squirrel and then finishes his ride to the library where he reads things in different languages this is what I imagine, like, Dwight Schrute would be on his weekends. Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. Yeah. Uh. But the surprising thing to me was that apparently this was not an unusual lifestyle that for people that lived in Lincoln, Montana. So hmm. he moved to the right area. Yeah. Um, Kaczynski decided that it would be impossible to live peacefully in nature because of the destruction of the wild land around his cabin by real estate development and industrial projects. In response, he began performing actions of sabotage against nearby development in 1975 Mm. and dedicated himself to reading about sociology and political philosophy. So that's like illegal to sabotage construction and development. So that's not a good start. Yep. Um, And then in 1990, his father actually um, suffered from terminal cancer and committed suicide. He shot himself (gasps) because he was basically gonna die of cancer anyway (laughs) which is so awful so yeah he he had definitely an interesting life to say the least in an interview after his arrest he recalled being shocked on a hike to one of his favorite wild spots so he basically he went out there and was shocked with what he found so um the quote was it's kind of rolling country not flat and when you get to the edge of it you find these ravines that cut very steeply into cliff-like drop-offs There was even a waterfall there. It was about a two-day hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found that they had put a road right through the middle of it. You just can't imagine how upset I was. It was from that point on, I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. Yeah, not kind of scary. Great, kinda scary. super scary. So he's the kind of guy that like 
you live in fear of constantly that mm-hmm. you're going to bump into someone who's this kind of off the rocker. Yeah. Where, like you don't know what they're going to do at any point in time. Yeah. They're just like you can't figure out what's going on in their head. And I feel like we've all occasionally bumped into the person or maybe know someone who is kind of like a little bit disconnected, kind of grumbly old man or something. Mm-hmm. It's like where's the line where it's just a grumbly person to someone who's like sabotaging and out for revenge and actually yeah. is like evil and scary. Because that's terrifying. Well, and like to just anyone walking down the street, you don't know that. You have no way of knowing that that's what's going on in people's heads. And so like when we did the episode on Joseph Duncan, like you could just walk by this guy and have no idea that like they're plotting murder and just, oh, it's absolutely terrifying. It's so spooky. I try not to think about it too hard, honestly. You can't. You can't. So this anger led him to commit Tons of crime between 1978 mm-hmm. and 1995. And from what I understand, he was good at it. Uh, Yeah, he was a pretty sneaky little sneak <laughs> about all of it. And again, we're dealing with a smart guy. Um, So, as you know, in his name, the Unabomber, um, it was shortened from University Airline Bomber into Unabomber. That's how he got his coined name. Um, But basically, his spiel was that he made a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that killed three people and injured 23 others. Which, from what I understand, it could have been so much worse. So many more, you have no idea. And just think about, like, a crazy person that lives in the woods and has access to, basically, ways to learn about things like bomb making. Like, Mm -hmm. ugh, that's so scary. Yep. And, I mean... With the internet involved, too, like, you could go really far and learn a lot of spooky stuff. Yeah. I would, well, but I would say the internet wasn't popular yet, and especially for someone who hates technology. He wouldn't have had it. He wouldn't have had it. So he did all this by, like, flipping through books, (laughs) which, as we've discussed, sounds painful. Well, I'm sure, (laughs) I'm sure he learned a lot through his degrees about chemistry and kind of how that stuff worked. So he could probably figure it out. He's using math and chemistry. Well, he had to study both. I've read it here and there where... Okay. Fine. I mean, you can't go through Harvard and all the way up to a PhD without learning some chemistry. Okay. So, and he was smart. So let's just assume he knows something about bombing. Okay. <laughs> um. So his very first bomb was directed at Buckley Christ, a professor of materials engineering at Northwestern University. On May 25th, 1978, a package bearing Christ's return address was found in a parking lot at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Which, like, that alone is so smart. You don't send it to him. You put it as the return address yep. that goes back to him? Like, who thinks of that? Yep. Crazy people. Yep. Uh, so what ended up happening is someone was walking around and um, found it and brought it back to him. And he went, uh, I didn't mail no package. Smart. And so he called the on-campus security. So smart. And uh, unfortunately... When the security guard came, he opened the package and it exploded and injured his left hand. So could you imagine being the person who was like, I did a good deed today. I brought a box (laughs) to a guy who lost it. I'm so happy. I'm going to go buy myself a coffee because I'm a nice person. (laughs) And then you find out someone's arm got severely injured because you brought them a mysterious package. Mm It's kind of scary. Super scary. So after that, uh, Kaczynski returned to his home in Illinois, which is where his family was from. Um, And again, this was in May of 1978. 
Um, and he stayed there for a while to work with his father and his brother at a foam rubber factory. However, in August of 1978, he was fired by his own brother. Oh, that's not a good sign. Well, his brother was justified because uh, Kaczynski uh, was writing insulting limericks about a female co-worker who uh, he was trying to court. Oh, geez. So he's probably being a little nasty, a little rude, coming on too strong. And his brother's like, yo, you're being a creep. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta go. Oh, gosh. So it's kind of nice back in 1978, like women's rights. Yeah. Kind of, even though it's like blood is thicker than water, he's still, yeah. I mean, his brother I mean, good must for have been his brother. a little off. Let's so. say that, I mean, his brother could have seen a bad fate after that. Yeah. And from what I understand, he didn't. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um... So the female who he was courting um, basically said that when she knew Kaczynski, he was intelligent and quiet, but they had no, like, sort of relationship whatsoever. And that <laughs> He was probably writing nasty notes because she wouldn't date him. Exactly. Oh, no. <sighs> so, boys, get the hint. <laughs> yeah. And don't anyway. take it so stinking personal. Seriously. Like, just, like, move on. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Um, but crazily, after that, um, I, it can be assumed he moved back to his cabin and had more time to stew by himself, especially after being fired by your brother. <laughs> yeah, not great. Living in a cabin, no electricity, nothing to think about except uh, your rude brother and your anchor and people ruining all the nature around you, as we talked about. Because I noticed the, the timeline. The rage would be building, yes, to say the least. it overlapped. So his first crime was in 1978, and that was about in your timeline when you were talking about when he was getting his revenge mode on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so after that bombing, it was followed by bombs being sent to airline officials. And in 1979, a bomb was placed in the cargo hold of an American Airlines flight 444 and a Boeing 727 flying Oof. from Chicago to Washington, D.C. And as we learned, those fit like a hundred people. <laughs> yeah. Big plane. They're... They're huge. And uh, luckily for all those passengers and for my own uh, fears of flying, <laughs> they didn't die because uh, something happened. I guess there was a faulty timing mechanism that prevented the bomb from exploding. Oh, God. Um, but what did end up happening is that it started smoking and it forced the plane to have an emergency landing. And authorities, when they found the bomb and, like, took it apart and tried to figure out what was smoking in the plane, mm -hmm. uh, the bomb definitely had the power to obliterate the plane, Ugh. apparently. So they lucked the heck out. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that they didn't, you know, die in the sky. Yeah, that's so scary. And thank God we have, like, I know security is a pain in the butt, but, like... <laughs> Thank God we have it Seriously. because, oh my gosh. As we've learned from freaking D.B. Cooper and the <laughs> Unabomber is that airport security saves lives. Thank you, TSA. Thank you, TSA. I don't like the whole three ounce bottle thing, but I'll allow it. Yes. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um. So anyway, Kaczynski, being as smart as he was... He always left false clues in every bomb. So which, stinking smart. I know. You never think about that. You think to not leave clues. You don't think to leave false clues. Like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. Yeah. It was pretty intense. Um, so it made it really hard to track him down when this was on their radar because bombing an airplane is a federal crime. So <laughs> bombing is probably a federal. <laughs> well, actually, or close to. no. So no? originally the case was in the hands of, I believe it was the U.S. Postal Inspectors Department. That doesn't seem like a big enough deal. Well, because at first it was just a piece of mail, right? That's with true. a bomb. So that could be like, if you think about 
Uh, bombing someone is not okay. But it's if it okay. seems like a one-off personal attack, he isn't a That's terrorist. True. He's just trying to get somebody. But to the point where you just like willy-nilly throw mm-hmm. some bombs onto a plane to just kill a group of people that's terrorism and yep. that's when the fbi says you want our radar and we're gonna figure this out because yeah. this is not okay so um his main false clue was that he had fc the initials hidden somewhere usually on the pipe end cap because mm. he knew that wouldn't explode it like pops off during the explosion oh. in like intact so fc apparently stood for freedom club um but i assume he just kind of willy-nilly used that as a secret nod to himself and i think it just kind of shows his narcissism mm-hmm. a little bit more like well, i'm let's part be of the freedom club no one else was in a club with him <laughs> gonna have another drink of water (laughs) anyway (laughs) that was his main false clue um but he did have a couple others that were a little unusual um one was left in a bomb that didn't detonate and it said woo it works i told you it would (laughs) signed rv so again he used some other fake initials and we don't know what it stood for but it basically was trying to get the scent off of him okay probably worked Yes, and another clue was that he used the Eugene O'Neill $1 stamps to send his boxes, which is kind of random, but... Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I don't either. I mean, but it's basically they just saw a pattern, so it was how they were identifying that, So they could tell it was the same person, basically. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Um, But the FBI did theorize that he had a theme of nature, trees, and wood in his crimes, because there were often bits of tree branch and bark in his bombs, which is very strange. I feel like from what I've heard about bomb making <laughs> is that you like fill it full of shrapnel, right? Which you would want, I mean, you would want to put like metal and like glass and like nails so that yeah. you're hurting people more. And I feel mm-hmm. like wood is like really low on the list, but like. It's not sharp, but I could see why it would do some damage. It, I mean, it definitely could if it's blown at you hard enough, but I it guess. just. It seems odd. That's why they could theorize that, you know, though, because I feel like most serious bomb makers without a nature agenda might leave the wood part out. Yeah. So the FBI was on his trail, but he continued bombing. The first very serious injury that occurred was in 1985 when John Hauser, a graduate student and captain in the U.S. Air Force, lost four fingers and vision in one eye. Oh, gosh. This bomb like most of the others, was handcrafted and made with wooden parts. Hmm. So they could tell, again, it was Kaczynski. Um, But they didn't know, but they were on his trail. Next uh, was Hugh Scrutton, a 38-year-old Sacramento, California computer store owner. Hmm. He was killed. So this is his first, like, murder Hmm. in 1985 by a nail and splinter (gasps) loaded bomb placed in the parking lot of his store so as you can imagine he has a vendetta against people owning technology stores it's all somewhat related to innovative technology Mm -hmm. things yeah and then in february of 1987 he did a similar attack against a computer store in salt lake city the bomb was disguised as a piece of lumber that time Hmm. and gary wright went and attempted to remove it from the store's parking lot and the explosion severed nerves in Wright's left arm Mm. and propelled more than 200 pieces of shrapnel into his body. Were these mailed or how were they getting to these places? 
They must have been. Mailed. I don't. I don't think anybody really knows. I think he was probably placing some of them, okay. like. Because if you can imagine, if this is... Well, he's a hermit. Like, no one's going to notice if he disappears exactly. to California for a week. Exactly. And it sounds like he did enough odd jobs and, like, was under the radar enough. And I'm sure he had money saved from mm-hmm. his, like, career before he up and left. Yeah. That um, he could take quick trips. I, I was actually surprised by that, too, mm-hmm. of how, like, nonchalant some of the documentaries I was watching um, they said, oh, yeah, he went and stayed at a hotel for X, Y, and Z reason or hmm. to go complete this mission of bombing someplace. Jeez. You'd think that'd be suspicious, but I could also see why that'd be hard to match him to the pattern of just some random dude in a hotel nearby. Yeah, and honestly, back then, I mean, if we can see a pattern from uh, how airlines mm-hmm. were secure, like hotels, I'm pretty That's sure true. back then, you didn't need a cash. credit. Yeah, yeah, you just could kind of check in. You could do it under a false name. You could pay with cash. You're in and out, and That's it's true. like it never happened. But then later on, in 1993, and this was after a whole six-year break, so wow. I don't know what was going on in his life then. I mean, that was only three years after his dad died. That's true. So maybe he felt a little Some time sad to mourn. He or wanted something. to go walk through the flowers for a while yeah. and think about his life. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe don't know. he went home for a while. I have no idea. Who knows? Um, he eventually, after that six-year break, mailed a bomb to David Gelernter, a computer science professor at Yale University. He was critically injured, but he recovered. In the same weekend, he also mailed a bomb to the home of Charles Epstein, from the University of California in San Francisco. He lost several fingers upon opening it. Oof. Yeah. I find it kind of odd. Of course, I'm not a scientist. I've never looked up anything about making a bomb. But I, if, I find it strange that most of his bombs only severely mm-hmm. injured people. I was surprised too because you think if he made one that could take down a whole airplane, that the ones that people actually opened would do more than just take out fingers. Mm-hmm. That is surprising. I agree. And so, so I don't know if it's just because it's a size problem. Like, I don't know. Like, maybe. would you need a certain amount of ingredients or something? Well, and maybe he was just trying to threaten people and maybe killing wasn't his full objective. See, I don't that's, know. That's what I'm wondering, but it's a bomb so yeah i, don't <laughs> I feel know. like you could like try to blackmail or like threaten someone some other way by like a angrily written poem or something yeah. rather than like send them a bomb so i truly don't know kaczynski then called galerinter's brother joel galerinter a behavioral geneticist and told him you are next Ooh, spooky scary yeah and then later on a geneticist named philip sharp at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, received a threatening letter two years after that. So very interesting. He he's picking so a lot random. of professionals. Yeah, it's like he hones in on some specific thing. Mm-hmm. That I mean, I don't know what was happening in genetics at that time that could be affecting technology or what yeah. um, the Unabomber was standing against. Mm-hmm. But uh, who knows? He was honing in on them at the time. Then a year later, in 1994. An executive from Burson Marceller named Thomas J. Mosser was killed by a mail bomb sent to his Mm. home in North Caldwell, New Jersey. In a letter to the New York Times, Kaczynski said he blew up Thomas Mosser because Burston Marceller helped Exxon clean up its public image after the Exxon Valdez incident. Whoa. So I don't know if you saw anything about that because I think he actually wrote about it in his manifesto. But um, apparently this 
Exxon Valdez incident, it was a giant oil spill. Oh. And so Kaczynski or the Unabomber mm-hmm. was Very super worried into the about environment. the environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Protecting and it. If they're covering up mm-hmm. their image, Whew. yeah, super intense. So he wanted to basically nip that in the bud and show leaders of these, like, mm-hmm. executives of these companies that he ain't messing around and he's paying attention to who's destroying our planet. Yeah, that's super scary. Yeah. After that, that bombing was followed up by the 1995 murder of Gilbert Brent Murray, the president of the Timber Industry Lobbying Group called California Forestry Association. And this was done by a mail bomb addressed to the previous president, so maybe he wasn't mm-hmm. up to date on who was <laughs> who was the top. But oh, unfortunately, geez. Gilbert got the brunt of that, mm. and um, that was his final crime in his bomb spree. I wonder if it's on purpose that he was starting to do more larger bombs that were actually murdering people yeah or if maybe he's just getting better at bomb making because a lot of his early ones were just injuries yeah but towards the end he was getting them murdering people yeah i don't know i i I would imagine so but again it's really hard to know his motive because as we continue to learn he kind of seemed a little bit off in a lot of ways so how that's measured and what his motives truly could be Mm -hmm. kind of all over the place so in that time of bomb making going to the library possibly eating squirrels <laughs> we don't really know um living in isolation basically um he started to write and turns out he had a giant manifesto mm-hmm. that he had written it's called the industrial society and its future and um he wanted to get it his word out to the world yeah so basically that covers like a lot of his thoughts and the ways he thought that technology and society was basically ruining the world. And so in 1995, Kaczynski mailed letters to several media outlets outlining his goals and demanding that his 35,000 word essay, um, which, yeah, as you said, called the Industrial Society and its future, later dubbed the Unabomber Manifesto by the FBI. And that's how I knew it. Because they didn't, they probably didn't know who published it. Who knows if it had a title, Mm -hmm. but... Um, he basically demanded that it be printed verbatim by a major newspaper. He stated that if the demand was met, he would desist from terrorism. So that's a pretty big thing to uh, risk. Yeah. Basically, you print this or who knows what's going to happen. And that's brave, too. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me, I feel like if you're ever, like, in a lie or, you know, doing something (laughs) awful, I've never done anything nearly this bad. (laughs) So glad to hear it. But, uh... You'd think you would never want to risk anything like mm-hmm. exposure. But again, if we're talking about his profile. Well, and, and he, he was probably getting braver the more he was doing this and not getting caught. Yeah, very true. But yeah, that's pretty bold to just ask someone to publish your work. Yeah. And hope they don't realize it's you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was definitely controversy over whether or not the essay should be published. But basically, the FBI recommended that it should be published out of concern for public safety. They yeah. didn't want to take that risk, which I think was probably best. Isn't there a term like we don't negotiate with terrorists? Yeah. So I can imagine that's, that's the movies. like backlash to like why mm-hmm. they wouldn't. But also it's like if we just publish this, maybe he'll stop bombing people. So maybe it's a good idea to just yeah. do it. Fair. And so um, they also thought maybe it could help identify the author. And so Penthouse volunteered to publish it, but Kaczynski replied that Penthouse was less 
respectable than other publications. I could see that. Uh, yeah. And so um, he said that he would reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill after our manuscript has been published. So the New York Times and Washington Post both published the essay on September 19th of 1995. Oh my gosh. I would have been how many days old? Uh, What's 19 minus 8? I would have been 11 days old at this time. That is true. Interesting. So tiny. Yep. Yep. And you had no idea what that was going on in the world. Yeah. Your poor parents were probably terrified. <laughs> True. Yeah. But basically, so I read some of his manifesto, not very much. She dense. <laughs> it's incredibly dense. Yeah. And I mean, if you're interested, you can read the PDF online of his manifesto. And I mean, it, it kind of does give a slight insight to who he was, but we have kind of some summaries touching on... Little bits and bobs. Little bits said. of this 35 page, very dense. Yes. And in layman's terms, because, uh, uh, kind of. <laughs> we didn't get a PhD. So, Correct. uh, don't intend to. Grasping everything that he has going on in there might not be happening for us. It's a lot. So bear with me, even for the summary. Um, but basically, he begins the assertion the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. He writes that technology has been a destabilizing effect on society, has made life unfulfilling, and has caused widespread psychological suffering. I can't say that I disagree with him. See, <laughs> I can see why, like, part. in some ways, like, yeah, he might be right about some of this, but, like, too far, buddy. Like, yeah. You don't have to blow people up because of it. It's hard because... At what rate, like, let's say, let's say he's 100% right. I mean, I'm not saying you bomb people because of it, but let's say he predicted everything correct and mm -hmm. his opinion is entirely true that the way that we're all living our lives through technology and advancement of always looking for the next best thing. And again, our fascinating fact coming into this episode was all about technology mm -hmm. and how it consumes itself and multiplies itself. Like, how, how could we even... Mm -hmm. like go against that i guess public outwardly like he is i can't even imagine how furious he would be if he could see today oh like, my god just walking down the street people on their phones like the way society is like tearing down trees to build yeah for <laughs> residential real. areas yeah Ooh, yeah but he argues that most people spend their time engaging in useless pursuits because of technological advances. He calls these surrogate activities, wherein people strive toward artificial goals, including scientific work, consumption of entertainment, and following sports teams. I watched a lot of TikTok today, so I can too. relate. But also, like, how much value does it add to just be in the forest? True. Like, staring at space like yes that's wonder. nice but it doesn't add value to the world either so yeah it's kind of a weird well argument. you could argue i suppose that he might have a smaller footprint i on guess the earth that's true this if he's bicycle. not using yeah <laughs> he's not using as much energy but who yeah knows? that's a good point um but he predicts that future technological advances will lead to extensive human genetic engineering and that human beings will be adjusted to meet the needs of the social system rather than vice versa whoa so that can explain why he targeted geneticists <gasps> yeah and guess what we just did an episode on cloning. We did. And that's what they were talking about. <laughs> that's so true. Doody, 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 doody. Well, and that would have been kind of in line with some of the, like, early studies of cloning would probably yeah. be announced in, in the news. About, so he's probably like, oh, my gosh, we're creating clones. We're tearing down the trees. Like, this has got to stop. I got to start bombing people. Yeah. Well, from what I understand, yeah, he was just trying to scare people into listening to him because... Yeah. 
he was narcissistic and mm-hmm. he believed what he was saying was the ultimate truth. But at the same time, like, he was just sending bombs to people. Like, there wasn't messages associated with it. It's not like he was saying, stop what you're doing or else. That's true. It was just like, here's the bomb. Sucks to be you. Well, maybe he planned it all along to send the manifesto. Maybe. Maybe. It's a forceful way to get published. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder when he started writing it and when he finished. Yeah. Kind of how that plays into it. Gotta wonder. Yeah. Um, But he believes that technological progress can be stopped, unlike people who understand technology's negative effects, yet passively accept it as inevitable. He calls for the return to wild nature. He argues that the erosion of human freedom is a natural product of an industrial society because, quote, the system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function. And that reform of the system is impossible because changes large enough to make a lasting difference in favor of freedom would not be initiated because it would be realized that they would be gravely disruptive to the system. Whoa. However, he states that the system has not yet fully achieved control over human behavior and is currently engaged in a desperate struggle to overcome certain problems that threaten its survival. Mm -hmm. He predicts that if the system succeeds in acquiring sufficient control over human behavior quickly enough, it will probably survive. Otherwise, it will break down and that the issue will most likely be resolved within the next several decades, say 40 to 100 years. Hmm. I mean, I'm getting close to that window. (laughs) I'm trying to think to myself about like trying to empathize with him and understand Mm -hmm. where why he's coming from, where he's coming from, but also keep in mind that he wasn't mentally stable when going through this. Um, But I think the reason why our development as humans in general and technology and growth, I feel like there's the scary thing that humans get exposed to as soon as they turn adults and like move out of their own like their parents house it's like this because i was trying to imagine what he was talking about when all the humans would be under control and i was trying to think about if he thought the way he was living was humans under control himself i guess he probably was just kind of doing what he was told in a lot of ways and he was still so young that he probably didn't have the freedom that he felt someone should yeah i really don't know and but if he thought Everyone should live the way he did as an adult where he just like had a piece of property with basically a shed mm-hmm. and had to like garden for his own stuff and forage and do all that and be carbon neutral in every way. If that's what his expectation was for everyone else, I think the biggest fear that people have is when it comes to nature and going back to the land and trying to depend on those things is things like weather patterns mm-hmm. and crop for that year and rain patterns like you can't guarantee that your food is going to grow every season Mm -hmm. immaculately to the point of survival and i think it's the fight or flight in humans that cause us to develop these technologies Mm -hmm. to protect ourselves from these things going poorly like i can imagine i mean we know there's big industries that have ways to process and collect food and Mm -hmm technology and data and information so that we can keep learning and keep growing so we can keep trying to protect ourselves when I mean maybe in reality there is no doing that and no matter what happens and no matter how much technology there is there could be a quote unquote weather pattern change (laughs) and something crazy could happen we could all die I mean famine is totally a thing where like it doesn't rain for however long and crops don't grow and like a whole season of growing could go to waste and 
like there's a lot of scary stuff that can happen and Mm -hmm. we have a lot of things in place for you know canned food and just ways to prolong the life of the food we have Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the fear i remember when i moved out of my parents house went up to college and bought my own little trailer house to live in and i remember feeling like this shadow had been lifted off of me and i had to like embrace the fact that if my sink were to have a leak in it or mm-hmm. like start flooding my house it would be my job to fix it and try mm-hmm. to survive yeah um because i was far enough away from home where there ain't no calling your parents so i feel like i mean humans are just it's in our nature to try to protect ourselves from those yeah. those fears and so i get what he's saying because it's good to care about your planet mm-hmm. and take care of it but also like it's very narcissistic of mm-hmm. him to assume his beliefs onto other people yeah. because in this world there's really no measurable way to decide which option is better mm-hmm. because there could be a universe or a creator or something that's causing people to live or die or move on or the species to continue on it's really not in our hands yeah that's true take the dinosaurs for example <laughs> debatable (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) but they were hit by meteors and they all died so that could very well happen to us with we if we have (laughs) cell phones in our hands or not if you're confused you should probably listen to our previous episode about cloning yeah and he keeps going and gets into some of what i thought was more controversial maybe um so he states that the task of those who oppose industrial society is to promote social stress and instability Hmm. and to propagate an ideology that opposes technology one that offers the counter ideal of nature in order to gain enthusiastic support Hmm. a revolution against technology may be possible when industrial society is sufficiently unstable throughout the document kaczynski addresses left-wing politics as a movement he defines leftists as mainly socialists collectivists political correct types feminists gay and disability activists animal rights activists and the like Hmm. states that leftism is driven primarily by feelings of inferiority and over socialization Hmm. and derides that i think the thing he's missing is the word compassion (laughs) for others who aren't you yeah and and thinking like i i kept reading this trying to remember this is 1995 so things would have been a lot different for some of these groups and and this was part of what i actually read of his manifesto and it's pretty interesting kind of rough not i wouldn't say i agreed (laughs) with a lot of it yeah it it was yeah a lot well i can see it but i i could see why he describes it like leftist as that because frankly to this day if we're stereotyping Mm -hmm. roughly that's what people still say about the left quote unquote they do Mm -hmm. i mean if we were talking bernie sanders and socialism right Mm -hmm. it's a thing yeah so i don't think he's necessarily off but i think again it just exemplifies that he is completely disassociated Mm -hmm. with compassion and trying to understand people who aren't experiencing what he's experiencing and he just can't put his brain there Mm -hmm. to like be compassionate towards those subgroups and he basically said like i mean i'm paraphrasing but he essentially was saying that these people are overly sensitive and that they're taking terms that aren't meant to be derogatory and making them derogatory and sounds like what today's world calls a snowflake we're still having this argument yeah 25 years later Mm -hmm. so we haven't figured it out yet 
Um, but he does say that leftism is one of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world. Hmm. He additionally states that a movement that exalts nature and opposes technology must take a resolutely anti-leftist stance and must avoid all collaboration with leftists. <laughs> as, <laughs> as in his view, leftism is in the long run inconsistent with wild nature, with human freedom, and with the elimination of modern technology. But he also criticizes conservatives, describing them as fools who whine about the decay of traditional values. Oh. Yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Yeah. So he didn't like anyone or any perspectives. Yeah. As far as like politics and stuff, he, he basically... I mean, it's weird yeah. that that was written in 1995 because if you told me right now that that's something they were I, saying on the news right now, I would believe you. I was like read. I was like two pages into this reading it and I had to scroll up to the top to double check what <laughs> date it was published because I thought maybe this just came out oh because I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it. I also had to keep reminding myself like, this is not like this is as old as me. Yeah, <laughs> it was interesting. So I I did not read all of it, but it's much more in depth. And I mean, there's 35 pages of this in mm. small font. So yeah. there's a lot if anyone's interested in reading it. Hmm. So when he was writing this document, he was on a typewriter because again, he didn't have no computer, no <laughs> Microsoft used it anyway. <laughs> exactly. Um, but he had a certain style that he wrote in where he capitalized entire words to show emphasis. Did you see that in the paper? I. It must have been very choice. Let me check. I don't specifically remember, but I honestly can't say that I would remember that. Yeah. Well, it could have been it could have been pretty small amounts because mm -hmm. eventually that's what they used to identify him. Yeah. And I didn't read that much of it. So yeah. I just might not remember. Who knows? Um, but he also always referred to himself as either we or FC. So again, Freedom Club yep. is just like he talks a lot about freedom, and I actually just pulled up the document, and yes, there are some words in all capitals, but like only a couple per page, maybe it's not a ton, hmm. but enough to notice if you're trying to analyze it. Yeah, and so upon further inspection, you can see that it contains a regular spelling and some hyphenation and other linguistic idiosyncrasies. Well, and I would say from just what I read, like. It's interesting because it's dense, but it's not that hard to read. Yeah, like, it's there just are like a stream of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, and hard to read because of how dense they are. But his, like, I could follow it. It was just a lot. Yeah, it's like it's so not it, worth it did have listening. a different style for sure. <laughs> he needed an editor to like tone it back a little bit. It's like yeah, you need to make some cuts here and some cuts here. You're a little rambly here. Kind of aggressive here. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. As I mentioned, after his bombing spree and his final murder where he sent the mail bomb, the investigation began. So this was after he had already mailed um, in his manifesto. They were still on his tail trying to hunt this guy down, trying to get people to stop getting bombed. Um, but the investigation began where they basically were calling him the junkyard bomber because Ooh, the materials he, he used. Like that. <laughs> I know, seriously, not good for the ego. Um, but that was by the U.S. Postal Inspectors, like I told you before, who uh, originally were on the case to try yeah. to figure out why that was happening in the mail. Um, but then the FBI gave him his coin name of the Unabomber, um, like we said, with University Airline Bomber. But eventually, the task force grew to more than 150 full-time people Whoa. analyzing the recovered components of the bombs and investigation into the lives of the victims 
and this provided little use identifying who the Unabomber actually was. I bet he would hate knowing that they were using technology (laughs) and 150 Uh, people just to figure out who he was. True. They couldn't figure out why someone was just building bombs primarily from scrap materials found almost anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the victims that the investigators later learned were chosen irregularly from a library search. So they really couldn't like pinpoint what his motives were at that point. But in 1980, one of the chief agents named John Douglas uh, was working with the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit, and he created a psychological profile of the unidentified bomber. It described the offender as a man with above-average intelligence and connections to academia. So they were kind of on his track. And they also kind of, they could tell he was um, anti-technology. So they were very close to, like, his actual profile. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself... More women should have this job (laughs) because being like a psychoanalysis profiler, I'm like, I feel like I have a really good judge of character and I feel like I would do a really good job kind of sussing out who someone was based on clues. Kind of interesting. Yeah. The only thing is like from those details, like that's still like, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people probably. Mm -hmm. They also had kind of a false lead on like a suspect profile where they thought he was a blue collar plane mechanic just because i assume the airline part is abnormal yeah so i don't that seemed really random that he tried to bomb that airplane but again flying i guess is a pretty intense new technology i mean can't remember when flying became a thing but uh it seems like maybe that would be his motive maybe because i i can't imagine there it would be well planned enough for him to know someone was on the plane yeah so So they have this profile, they have a general idea, but still no solid leads whatsoever. And then cue the time where they were negotiating in his manifesto to be published. Once it was in the papers, the FBI received over a thousand calls a day for months in response. And it had an offer of $1 million of a reward for information leading to the identification of the Unabomber. Whoa. I know. I wonder if you could turn yourself in and get the money. Mm, no. <laughs> yeah, you can get out of it when uh, you get out of jail and all that. From bombing sprees to shopping. <laughs> Ooh, me like. So in this time, the manifesto was in the papers, right? So people were reading it. It was that juicy gossip of the time. People were wondering who this guy was. People were scared. And um, the Unabomber had a brother named David Kaczynski. And this brother had a wife and the wife read part of this manifesto in the paper and was like, hmm, this reminds me of some of the beliefs that my brother-in-law has. And at that point, I don't think he had been in contact with his family for a while, maybe Mm -hmm. since his dad's passing, who really knows. Um, But she was pretty suspicious. And so she encouraged David to start reading it. And from everything I learned about, they started day by day picking apart the manifesto and over time david his brother became more and more convinced that oh crap oh Mm. crap oh crap that's my brother oh jeez whoopsies and so he wasn't quite sure what to do yet because i mean it's your family so he Mm. decided well it's hard to say for certain yeah exactly so what he did to become certain was um he hired a private investigator named susan swanson Um, She was local to the Chicago area 
and she started to investigate um, the Unabomber or Ted's activities very discreetly. David later hired a Washington, D.C. attorney, Tony Biskegli, to organize the evidence acquired by Swanson and make contact with the FBI, given the presumed difficulty of attracting the FBI's attention. David wanted to protect his brother from the danger of an FBI raid because, I mean, he's his brother. Yeah. He's a normal human, so he has some compassion. (laughs) And um, he feared that a violent outcome would occur if a raid were to happen. So, in 1996... A former FBI hostage negotiator and criminal profiler, Clinton Zant, was contacted by an investigator working with Biskegli, so the brother's lawyer. Biskegli asked Zant to compare the manifesto to typewritten copies of the handwritten letters David had received from his brother over the years. Upon initial analysis, it was determined that there was a better than 60% chance that the same person who had written the manifesto was the person writing the letters. So it was obvious that there was a 60% chance his brother was the Unabomber. Jeez. Then they took a second swing at it and analyzed it, and they determined it was even a higher likelihood than they originally thought. And they encouraged the lawyer of the brother to instantly reach out to the FBI to see if they needed to make moves on getting him arrested. Do you think he got the money? See, <laughs> I I didn't want to like spoil this part before about oh that because well his brother was the one who turned him in yeah and was on to him and same with the wife so like would you accept a million dollars for Ooh, that's tough your Does brother it say going if to jail the, if he did no it never <sighs> talks about it I assume no probably not. Everything that I've read and seen, he loved his brother. He was confused by his brother and frustrated, as a lot of us are with our siblings. <laughs> I think he really cared about him. And as it showed, I mean, he went through all the process of hiring a private investigator and then a lawyer and then another investigator to figure this out before he even went to the FBI. Yeah. Cool. So I think it's pretty obvious that he cared a lot about That's that. Nice. And then in February of 1996, this evidence was turned into the FBI, and they decided to pursue Kaczynski with a warrant for his arrest. His brother David really did try to remain anonymous, but he was soon identified, um, which is crazy because the only people who knew was his private investigators and the FBI. So I'm, I don't know how they organized security of information of this case, but if you can remember, there's 150 people on the FBI task force and uh, someone was a snitch, and they mm-hmm. outed the brother that it was him. Oh, that's a bummer. Yeah. And it sounds like David really admired his brother, and it was really hard for him to have that be mm-hmm. outed. And the official news story that was leaked happened in early April of 1996. There was still a lot of speculation within the FBI if Kaczynski really was the one that they wanted to go after, Um, But after looking at more evidence, they just couldn't let it go and they went for it. So they wrote up the search warrant really quick and put it in front of a federal judge in Montana. And then they went to go after him. The FBI arrested Kaczynski on April 3rd, 1996 at his cabin where he was found in a very unkept state. A search of his cabin revealed a cache of bomb components 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments, descriptions of the Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready for mailing. So he wasn't done. He lied. Well, no, because remember he said 
if you print this manifesto, I'll only send one more. Oh. So we just don't oh. know to who or Oof. what that was all about. Jeez. Maybe it was his brother. I wonder. I can't believe he didn't accidentally blow himself, <laughs> himself up, up or hurt himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dangerous game to be playing. So basically, it was very easy for them to be like, okay, we're arresting you. Yeah. Because <laughs> all the evidence was there. After they confirmed all of the evidence and arrested him, he went in front of a federal jury and it was found that he had 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs and three counts of murder. It's kind of surprising that he didn't get stuff for like intent for murder for like 23 other people who were involved. like blackmail and other stuff, yeah. So his lawyers were headed by the Montana Federal Public Defenders, Michael Donahue and Judy Clark, and they attempted to enter an insanity defense to avoid the death penalty, but Kaczynski rejected this strategy. On January 8th, 1998, he requested to dismiss his lawyers and hire Tony Sarah at his counsel. Sarah had agreed not to use an insanity defense, but instead base a defense on Kaczynski's anti-technology views. This request was unsuccessful. You know what would help? Confirming everything I've ever said. Yeah. That'll help set me free. Yeah. No. Jeez. I can see why the insanity plea would be insulting, though. Yeah. Like, hey, man, I'm not insane. I have a PhD. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he was insane. Yeah. Um, And then after this request was denied that, uh, no, he couldn't use his views in court to stand for anything, and they did believe he was insane, he tried to commit suicide by hanging himself on January Whoa. 9th. I know. That's... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And... Apparently, he survived just fine. Nothing really came of it. And psychologists examined him and diagnosed him as having paranoid schizophrenia. Wow. And there was actually some debate following this that people weren't certain if that was true. Mm -hmm. Because, and I feel like bits and pieces that I've seen into the window of mental disorders is that they can flare up or kind of ease into the background if you have some more mental clarity. So I think... And, of course, there's lots of opinions about mental health and disorders in general out in the world even today. But um, some people were saying that he was lucky that psychologists allowed him to have the schizophrenic diagnosis because it made him a little bit easier on him in court. Interesting. And the weird part was that although he was determined to be schizophrenic, they also declared that he was competent enough to stand trial despite the diagnosis. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. But I guess, like I said, I feel like they were thinking it comes in waves mm-hmm. and that he was coherent enough to just like talk about his experience and like plead mm. his case. But maybe they were looking out for psychotic breaks. I don't hmm. really know. Okay. Since he was fit to stand trial, prosecutors sought the death penalty, but Kaczynski avoided that by pleading guilty to all charges on January 22, 1998, and he accepted life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He later tried to withdraw this plea, arguing it was involuntary. What? I know. That's weird. But his request was denied, and it stayed as it was. Wow. Yeah. That's very interesting. (laughs) And you want to know it was crazy? So a part in the documentary that I never found in any of the articles we were reading about this case is that they took his cabin. (laughs) They took his cab. They like brought a semi truck out to where his house was, lifted up his cabin and took it to where his trial was. What? To like look at it because they wanted to argue in favor of him being mentally not well by showing the circumstances he was living in because I guess his cabin was so 
nasty that they were like obviously a crazy person would be living in this nasty filth type of thing that's bizarre but also what was weird is as a intellectual he kind of had good taste so he had (laughs) i know it's kind of weird what do you mean i know i know (laughs) he had some like rare editions of books and some like expensive trinkets around to where after they literally uplifted his cabin and took it there um his personal papers were auctioned off and some of his items in his cabin were auctioned off and uh whoa they earned two hundred and thirty two thousand dollars to help pay back the 15 million dollars in restitution for his case of the victim's families so usually in cases i don't know if you know what restitution is it's when they you're paying for the damages that you caused so i assume i think when people go to jail they're also financially responsible for what they caused weird so anyway because how would you pay that i I don't know that's yeah i i did not i think it's another way to keep people in jail it's kind of like being on financial probation let's say He outlived his sentence, even though it was a life sentence or whatever. He would still owe that money. And if he Mm -hmm. couldn't pay that money, he'd have to go back to jail. Weird. Yeah. That's my understanding anyway. So all in all, that paid a tiny chunk of the restitution. But again, he's going to be in jail forever. He's still in jail to this day. I can imagine that, and you and I talked about this before we recorded a little, about how the absolute worst punishment for someone who's obsessed with the wilderness and hates technology would be to basically be in a concrete jail cell Mm -hmm. away from nature to not see it again well he actually made some friends in jail oh this is like the last little bit i have about him because again he's in jail so not much is going on for him Mm -hmm. but while he was in prison he met ramsey yusuf and timothy mcveigh the perpetrators of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the Oklahoma City bombing. (laughs) The trio discussed religion and politics and informed a friendship, which lasted until McVeigh's execution in 2001. So apparently bomb buddies is a thing. I know. So it's like, it's just obvious. It took jail to make friends? (laughs) Well, and bombs being in common, too. Oh, gosh, that's it's really ridiculous but anyway the prison he's staying in is in florence colorado not that far from here not that far uh his cabin ended up being seized by the u.s government and is on display in the museum in washington dc that's weird but other than that yeah he's just in jail serving his time why do we have museums of crazy people's things (laughs) i don't like that i mean i would go (laughs) oof that's i'd be curious to see that cabin you know i guess i don't know but it just goes one thing that crossed my mind about so thinking about the fact that he pled guilty got out of the death sentence and then wanted to go back on it the fact that he did commit suicide or try to commit suicide makes me wonder if he ended up wanting the death sentence yeah i could imagine that's the only thing i can think of yeah for that very much so i feel like i've seen that in a lot of cases that i've heard of is yeah people like realize what it means to actually be in jail forever and maybe like during trial i'm pretty sure people who are like you're in jail you're in jail and he's seeing what that life is like and he's like oh wait a second i would much rather die than continue living in jail that's crazy yeah it is and so to me the overall message of his story and experience is you know isolating yourself and not having compassion for others and understanding why The earth is just going to go how it's going to go. And humans, although we are flawed, we are beautiful. 
and you have mm-hmm. to show grace and compassion for those people and not send them bombs. That's no way to uh, be communicating your message. Mm-hmm. Although, like I said, I mean, I can't necessarily say I disagreed entirely with what he was saying about, you know, yeah. protecting our earth and all those things. But you can't make change by killing people yeah. and threatening people. There's just... It's not how the cookie crumbles. Yep. There are right and wrong ways to go about spreading your message and promoting change. Yep. And he did it wrong. Yep. But as usual, we're not experts. We are just fascinated. Uh, You can subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to hear us again next week. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have information to add to this week's topic or a fascinating fact that you want featured on a future episode, please email us at friendsfascinated at gmail.com. We also have a P.O. Box now. P.O. Box. Please do not send us bombs. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Just kidding. But we did receive our first package, which is super exciting. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you to Keith Hirschland for sending us copies of your book, Big Flies. We're super excited to read about it and learn more about your perspective on D.B. Cooper. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for sending that to us. It meant a lot. It, it truly did. It really does. Yeah. We, we're super excited. So thank you so much. And if anyone else wants to send us anything, you can send us packages or notes or whatever you want but not moms (laughs) to friends fascinated at p.o box 997 in pullman washington 99163 we can't wait to blow your mind with more curiosities next week you've just listened to another episode of friends fascinated thanks for listening